we are continuing a series looking at some really, really big questions that every single one of us are asking. And last week, Pastor Glenn jumped into a question that for me just helped me to fall back in love with the scriptures again. He, he continued the series by asking the question, is the scriptures, are the scriptures reliable? That can we actually trust them for life and salvation? It was absolutely incredible the way he unpacked those. And I feel like the facts that he shared, the history that he shared, the archeology, span the ways that the text points to Jesus and the resurrection was just phenomenal. And so definitely go on and check, uh, check that out. This morning, where we're going and, and what we're hoping to tackle is a question that I think of all the questions we're gonna talk about is the most emotional question. It's the question that probably for many of you has a story behind it. And, and we're going to just scratch the surface, but make sure you check out purposechurch.com slash clarity, especially for those of you that are parents um, and students. Make sure you check those out because we've got great questions that I think you guys could talk about around the dinner table. Uh, or if you're in your life group, it'd be amazing questions for you. But we also have a bunch of resources, other books, videos, uh, articles, things that you can look into to help you grapple and wrestle with this question. And the question we're looking at this morning is this. If God is all-powerful, why is there suffering? If God is all-powerful, why is there suffering? And I think you're already beginning to feel that there is an emotional tie to this question, that this isn't just an intellectual question. This is deeply personal. I think if we were to survey the room, I guarantee that every single person here, beginning with our students, all the way up to the oldest people we have with us, they would be able to tell you about some kind of suffering or pain that they've either seen on a global scale, but I guarantee they'd be able to tell you about a, a personal suffering, some struggle that they've had. That maybe you know somebody right now who has been diagnosed with an incurable disease. That maybe you know somebody who has terminal cancer. Maybe you know somebody who just got a divorce and, and you're watching the pain that they're going through. Maybe, maybe there's severed relationships at work or in family or with your kids. Maybe something has just happened in your life financially and you're just feeling the weight of it and you're experiencing an incredible amount of suffering. And here's what suffering is. Suffering is pain over a period of time. That's all suffering is, is pain over a period of time. And for some people, suffering happens in a moment and then there is relief. For other people, there is suffering that lasts weeks, months, years, and sometimes even a lifetime. But suffering is that intense amount of pain or fear or worry. You know, I was, uh, uh, last year, my wife had a group of her small group students over to our house for a sleepover. And they would do this every single year. My wife was leading a small group. And so she'd have them over at the house. And, and it was an amazing time because they, they're just crying and they're painting nails and they're making cookies and they're talking about really deep stuff and like how they can change the world. And it's like this amazing group of young women. And I would always like leave. Like I just get out of the house, let them kind of do their thing. And, and this last year I came back and and I called a friend of mine and I said, hey, buddy, he's my, he's my neighbor and he's also a police officer. I won't tell you who it is, but um, maybe you already know. Uh, he, comes, he comes over to the house and I say, hey, man, I'm about to come in. All these girls are like in the living room and they're probably deep in some emotional thing. What do you think about us scaring them, right? Like, what do you think about this? And, and, and he's like, I love you. This is it. Let's do it. And so he comes over to the house and we go to the circuit breaker. I didn't even know where that was. We found the circuit breaker. He... he <laughs> turns the lever, right? Turns the lever, kills all the power in the house. And we can immediately hear the girls like, they're like, ah, right? Like just start screaming. And I'm like, this is amazing. And so I walk around the house. I walk around the house 
And I go to like our back window and all the girls are kind of huddled in the living room and we can see them kind of looking around. And all of a sudden I go, ah! and I start banging on the windows, right? And they scream, but they don't know that the worst is about to come. My buddy, he comes in through the garage into the kitchen. He's got a big hoodie on, right? He runs. I didn't say this at the last service, but I'm going to say it. He runs in and he goes, somebody's going to die. Just like screaming, just screaming that, right? And these girls, they wet themselves. No, they didn't. They didn't. But it was just, it was amazing, right? It was so awesome. And, and parents, that's why you can trust me with your students. That's why, you know, that's why I got into this business, right? And, and in this moment, there was this intense amount of fear and anxiety and worry. And they experienced this, this brief amount of suffering, but then there was relief. And maybe you've been there, right? Maybe there were some financial troubles and then all of a sudden there was some relief. Or, or maybe you thought this relationship was going to end and there was restoration. Or maybe there was a horrible diagnosis and then you, you, you saw a miracle and something amazing happened. But it still begs the question, why does suffering exist? Why is it here? And I guarantee this is so personal for you that there's a story behind it. And so how I want to address this question is actually through a story. What I love about the Bible is the Bible does not shy away from the topic of suffering. In fact, you can find it in Genesis all the way to Revelation and every story in between. God is not afraid to talk about suffering. That even though some would raise the argument that you can't believe in a God if there is suffering for God, he's not afraid of it. That he's willing to talk about it, willing to enter into it. And so I want to address maybe the suffering story that you've experienced with a suffering story from scripture. But before we start, maybe you've felt this way. Check out this quote from the philosopher Epicurus. He says this, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to, but cannot, he is impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how come evil is in the world? Maybe you have wrestled with that. I know I have, and I continue to wrestle with it. This is one angle to how to address that question. First, first thing, we're going to jump into three questions and we're going to kind of try to answer them as quickly as we can. And, and hopefully you have some intellectual things that you leave our time with. But my hope is that at a deeper level, maybe at a heart level, that God speaks to you, that God gives you a hope that you didn't walk in this room with. So the first question when we're talking about suffering is this, when did suffering enter the story of the world? Like, how did suffering show up? And we don't have time to jump in it this morning, but I would encourage you to read Genesis chapter three. It's the third chapter in the Bible, in the story of God. Chapters one and two are all about how God created. Chapter three is about how we broke it. And in chapter three, there's these characters, Adam and Eve, who there's Satan and, and he shows up in the form of a snake and he begins to tempt them. And he says, you should eat this fruit. And they go, no, 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 we can't eat this fruit. God told us not to. God said that if we eat this fruit, that we will die. And Satan's going, you're not going to die. And what we see happen is Adam and Eve, they experience something that you and I have been given and it's free will. You see, they are enabled at this moment to make a decision. You see, when God created the world, he did so in such a way with, with giving us an incredible amount of freedom to either choose him or to not choose him. 
Well, Adam and Eve take this fruit and they eat and they disobey God. It's not just about the fruit. It's that God said, this is what flourishing looks like. This is what goodness looks like. This is what I've called you to. But if you don't want to do that, there is this other way. And I'm warning you, it leads to death. And you've experienced this. I mean, you've felt the sin of other people around you. And you've experienced how it's killed relationships, how it's severed trust, how it's brought so much pain into your life. That's what God is warning them about. But they go ahead and do what all of us do. And we say, God, I know you've called me to this. I know you've said that you're on the throne, but I want to go here and I want to put me on the throne. And so in this moment, because of Satan and because of free will, suffering and sin enters the story of the world. And you see, if, if, if you understand sin biblically, it's not just that thing that you did last weekend. It's actually something that destroys everything around us. I'm talking about sin destroys us biologically. It destroys us cosmologically, our relationship to the world. It destroys us relationally. It destroys us emotionally. It destroys us physically. And it destroys us spiritually. That sin brought about devastation and suffering and pain into a world that God never longed for it to be. You see, why, why, why does suffering continue? It's because we participate in sin. We are in proximity to sin. And so the perpetuation of sin continues. What I mean by that is you and I, we continue to participate in sin. That every day we choose ourselves and we continue to sin and hurt others. We, we continue to make decisions that benefit us primarily. And, and when we do that, it wreaks havoc and devastation and pain all over the place. But some of you are going, well, that thing happened to me and I don't really remember like making a choice. I don't remember like doing anything that would have initially caused that. And I would say to you, you're probably right. And that's because you're in proximity to sin. That's because sin surrounds you. That's because other people's sin and brokenness bumps up against yours. We've said this before, but hurt people hurt people. Sinful people continue sin in the world. And, and so you and I, because we directly participate, because we're in proximity, the perpetuation of sin continues. And some people would argue, well, because there is a presence of evil in the world, there can't be a God. And, and I would just want to offer one thought to that, and it would be this. I think, in fact, the presence of evil, the recognition of evil, the presence of evil actually gives evidence for the presence of God. And what I mean by that is, you look at anything happening on a national scale right now, on a global scale, and you and I look at that stuff and we go, that's jacked up, that's broken, that's pure evil. We look at the atrocities that have happened throughout the generations and we would go, we would say, that is pure evil. My question to you is, what gives you the ability to call that evil? How can you say that that thing is evil without measuring it against something that is good? And if you're measuring it against that thing that is good, what is it that gave you a definition of what is good? You see, even in the midst of God giving us free will, since he created every person in his image, there is still this thing in you, this image of God in you that sees suffering, exploitation, abuse, human trafficking, whatever it is, and something in you aches and you go, that's not right. And I think that's the image of God inside of you crying out, going, this is not how God intended it. Well, we're going to jump into a story about a guy in the Old Testament. His name was Joseph. And Joseph went through an incredible amount of suffering. 
And we're going to see how God entered into it, how God worked through it, and then how ultimately God has a conclusion for suffering. But I want you to find me in Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to go through a ton of verses together and jump around a little bit. And to get this whole story together, we kind of have to do it this way. But my hope is at the end of this that you relate to this guy and that you walk away with a little bit of hope. Find me in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse one, it says this. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Remember that, land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, okay, so he's 17 years old. This is what's awesome. There are tons of stories in the Bible about teenagers. This is one of them. The young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, this is his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Verse 3. Now Israel, this is Jacob. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's in the Bible. That's messed up. Like, that's parenting 101. Don't get caught saying that, even though you feel it. Don't get caught saying that. Are you kidding me? Like, everyone knows that, that Jacob has a favorite, that it's Joseph? I mean, do you see how the participation in sin, the proximity of sin, the perpetuation of it continues over and over again? I mean, how do you think the brothers of Joseph felt knowing that their dad had a favorite and it wasn't them? How do you think that settled with them? Because he had born to him in his old age and he made an ornament robe for him. So he gives him this awesome robe. Verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. You know what hate is? Hate is a direct consequence of sin. That when, when we're filled with hate for people, it, it, it's, it's from the pit of hell. I mean, it's got, it's got sin written all over it. And they're looking at their brother. And even though the situation's jacked up, they're saying, we absolutely hate him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. We'll check out what happens next in uh, chapter uh, 37, verse 18 to 20. So they begin to become more and more frustrated with him. And they see Joseph coming out to them to, to talk with them. And all of a sudden, they come up with this plan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. So they were absolutely done with him. They said, this is our moment. This is our chance. Dad is not around to protect him. He can't run off to mommy. We are going to kill this guy. And so that's their plan. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So what they decide to do is they, they decide to put him in a cistern. And as the story is told, they, they decide in that moment not to actually kill him, but they throw him inside of a cistern. And I've actually been inside of a cistern in Israel. And those things are absolutely terrifying. I mean, there's one way in and there's one way out. I mean, once you're dropped in there, you can't get out unless somebody lets you out. In fact, it's recorded in the book of Jeremiah that at one point, Jeremiah was imprisoned in a cistern. So dry cisterns where water had not collected were oftentimes used as prisons. And so they take Joseph, this 17-year-old, and they drop him in a well and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Check out what happens next. Judah said to his brothers, so Judah is one of the brothers and they're trying to figure out how they're going to kill him. And then Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Now, at this moment, Judah is like, brothers, I've had a great quiet time with the Lord this morning. And um, I'm feeling really spiritual. And I prayed about this. And uh, just felt convicted. Uh, We shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him. And everyone's like, you're so holy, Judah. Wow. What an amazing idea. I mean, Judah is like the model child here. I mean, how jacked up is this family that Judah is literally the prized kid because he says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. I don't know if you have these experiences at home when you, when you have little kids or you had little kids, but for us, we're constantly seeing our kids have these like moments where it seems like things are going really well. And then it's like a disaster. Like Lila, our, our um, one-year-old daughter, she's 15 months. She just learned how to walk. Right. And I swear she could have walked like three months ago, but here's the problem. She gets up and she's like all shaky. Right. And kind of trying to figure out how to walk. And, and her brother and sister, Charlie and Brindley, as soon as they see her, stand. It's like, no matter what they're doing, it doesn't matter if they're eating cake. Like in that moment, they're like, this is our opportunity. Right. And so what they do is like, like, like she's the quarterback and they literally blitz her like all the time. Right. Like they just will tackle her and slam her to the ground. And the poor girl has been like terrified her whole life to walk. And I look at my kids and I go, there was a real good moment there for you to step in and maybe say like, come Lila, walk to me. And they're like, no, we are going to body slam her. You know what I mean? Like that's what they come up with. Well, that's, That's kind of like Judah. My kids are a lot like Judah. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And then lastly, Genesis chapter 37 says this. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brother pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, from the land of Canaan, to Egypt is 200 miles. Most scholars believe that would have taken at least 10 days, if not two weeks or more. And his brothers sell him for 20 shekels. His great-grandfather, Abraham, bought a plot of land to bury his wife, Sarah, for 400 shekels. So put that into comparison that Abraham values this land at 400 shekels and these brothers value the life of Joseph at 20 shekels. I mean, what would that have felt like? You know, and the reason we're jumping into this story is because most, most historians believe that 95% of humanity's suffering is caused by humanity. But the problem is the way in which we interact with each other, the way we exploit and treat one another. And you may be asking, well, why, why would God do that? Why would God allow that? And then I stumbled upon this quote this week. I'm finishing this book by J. Warner Wallace, who is this amazing apologist. And basically what he has done in his book is as a former crime investigator, he's taken his investigative methods uh, in solving crimes and applied them to the New Testament, applied them to the Old Testament, applied them to the resurrection to see if there's evidence for God. It's absolutely an amazing read. And in it, he says this, is it more loving for God to create a world where love is possible? Or for him to create a world where love is impossible. A loving God would create a world where love is possible. But in that world, there must also be the possibility of rejecting his love. You see, God didn't create evil. He created the possibility of evil. He he created the option for us to choose evil. And he did it because it is actually the most loving thing for him to do is to create a world where you and I could actually choose him 
And the consequence would be we would reject him. So why does suffering continue to happen? Because of free world. Well, where is the hope in our suffering? And here's where we're going to sort of land the plane. This will be the rest of our time together is where is the hope in our suffering? That, that when did suffering enter the story? It was through Satan and through the fall. Why, did suff- why does suffering continue to happen? It's because of our free will. It's because we participate in sin. We are in proximity of sin and the perpetuation of sin continues. But here's where I want to get pastoral. So in light of that, Where is the hope in our suffering? Where's the hope in our suffering? Well, it's first in this, that God is with us in our suffering. That God enters into that suffering with us. Check out the way it goes in Joseph's story. Genesis chapter 39, verse one, it says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Next verse. But the Lord was what? The Lord was what? The Lord is with Joseph. This is amazing. Joseph is 200 miles from home in a culture that feels nothing like his home with a people that feel very distant to him. Probably language barriers, cultural barriers. Not only that, but he used to be free and now he's a slave and he feels alone, and he feels isolated, and I wonder if you've been there or if you're there. Or because of the suffering and the pain you're going through right now, you just feel totally alone, and you're asking the question, am I actually alone? Is there anyone out there? What's amazing about this story is that just in these few verses, it says, even though Joseph, even though Joseph was far from home and experiencing the suffering that we couldn't imagine, it is said about him that the Lord was with him. Well, he begins to actually kind of rise in power and he, he finds himself in the palace of Potiphar. And, and even though he has some influence and some power, don't forget that he's still far away from home. Don't forget that he hasn't seen his dad in a really long time. Don't forget that he never got to say goodbye to his dad. Don't forget that he's still replaying at night when he falls asleep. The fact that his brothers had the guts to actually sell him. Well, he rises to the power and, and Potiphar trusts him with a lot. And, and at one moment, Potiphar's wife actually comes to him and she begins to desire Joseph. And it's a crazy part of the story where she literally walks up to Joseph and she says, Joseph, come to bed with me. I tell her high schoolers this all the time. You don't need to watch The Bachelorette. You know what I mean? Just read the Bible. Like, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy the stuff that's in there. I mean, this is scandalous. Like, don't read this to your kids unless you're ready. You know what I mean? I mean, this is a gnarly story. And Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me. And he says, no, I won't. I absolutely won't. Well, then Potiphar's wife one day fakes an assault. She accuses him of attacking her and and he hadn't. And Potiphar finds out about it. And then this is how the story goes. When his master heard the story of his wife, that his wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was what? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. You see, Joseph, he goes from the palace where there's still an amount of suffering because he's distant from his family, 
He goes from the palace and it's said that the Lord is with him. And then he goes to the worst of all places. He goes to the prison. And it's said that the Lord is with him. See, our ability to believe that and to know that and to experience that could change everything because we would realize that God is with us in our suffering. God is not the kind of God who created and then took a step back. He created and then took a step forward and said, even though sin is now a part of the story, even though my people experience suffering, I will choose to be with them in their suffering. Well, then things actually get worse for Joseph. He's in the prison and then there's a few guests that show up and it's said this way. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show my kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried here from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon, in this prison. And you see, Joseph at this moment met a cupbearer and a baker. And they come in and he interprets a dream for them. But then as they're about to leave, he says, please don't forget about me. Tell somebody about me. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't like this suffering. And he gives them that call, that commission. But for Joseph, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember him. And he forgot him. And maybe this has been a part of your suffering. You had somebody that you totally relied on, a husband, a wife, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a boss that you had depended on for absolutely everything. You had put all your chips in that basket and you were holding out and they were everything to you. And all of a sudden they forgot you. And the reason you're still suffering right now is because they forgot you. I get that. Let's go to our next passage. When two years, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream that he was standing by the Nile. So Joseph's waiting in the prison. And maybe he's drawing little dates, drawing little markers each day that goes by, hoping and praying that somebody would remember him, that somebody would remember him. And two years go by. And he knows that the Lord is with him because it's been said over and over and over again in this story that the Lord is with him. But he still finds himself in a place of suffering. But it's powerful to remember that God is with us. And, and the reality is God sends that message across all history through all the books in the scriptures. In fact, let's look at the first one, Job chapter 42, verse five. Job was the oldest book ever written. And it's a story about suffering. It's a story about pain. And, and at the end of it, after, after Job has just, just gone through hell and back, this is what it said. My ears had heard of you, this Job speaking. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, Job had this, this incredible experience where he realized through the suffering and through the pain, he was able to see God. He knew him before, but he was able to see him. Or what about what's recorded about David in Psalm chapter 23, beginning in verse four, it says this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are what? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. C.S. Lewis talks about pain and suffering this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, God enters into our suffering, speaking to us. But it wasn't just Joseph, it wasn't just Job, and it wasn't just David. In fact, Jesus 
our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, the creator of all the universe. He even experienced suffering. Check out the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, even Jesus experienced suffering. And suffering was such an important part of the story. In fact, I read this quote this week by John Stott. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And it it just made me well up with tears thinking about the reality of this. Check out what John says. Like I call him John. (laughs) Check out what John Stott says. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of this world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, how ble- the brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And here's what's beautiful and unimaginable and beyond belief about the cross, that in that moment when God entered earth, when, when God came to planet earth and we, humanity, did its worst to God, in that very moment, God did his best. In the moment when humanity killed God, God rose from the dead and said, I'm doing it to forgive what you just did and to forgive what you've always done. And to forgive that distance and that chasm between us. You see, God enters into suffering and does unimaginable things. In fact, he will actually work through your suffering. You know, uh, uh, this last summer, Sarah, my wife and I, we celebrated eight years of marriage. And one of the awesome things about where our wedding anniversary falls is it's always uh, when we're at camp with students, right? Which is every person's dream, right? It's every person's dream to spend their romantic anniversary with a thousand high school students. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's the dream come true. And so we're there, we're hanging out with students and, and we always sort of get away for like a lunch or a dinner to hang out. And, and when we were driving to dinner this last anniversary, we said, hey, what if we like just processed and brainstormed about eight great things that we've seen God do in our marriage? And I would encourage you to do this, that maybe the next anniversary you have to think about what are those great things that you have seen God do in your marriage? And here's what's crazy. As we made that list, almost every single thing had some amount of suffering and pain attached to it. That we looked back on some really painful, broken experiences we've had. Moments where we just say, God, where are you? And having a little bit of distance from him, we look back and go, oh man, God was there the whole time. 
Well, this is kind of how it goes for Joseph. Find me in Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 46. It says this, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So eventually he interprets this dream for Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I want to promote you to a place of status. He was 30 years old. Remember, he left his house at 17. He's 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Now, Joseph predicts that there is going to be this seven years of uh, awesomeness and this seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so he spends his first seven years preparing the people, preparing their stockpile to make sure that they have enough to feed each other and to survive as a country for those last seven years. And his brothers, his brothers who are back in Canaan, they want some, they're, they're hungry, They don't have a lot going on. And so they make their way to Egypt. And in this crazy, incredible moment, 20 years later, Joseph sees his brothers and his brothers don't even recognize him. Check out the way it's written. Then Joseph, in the presence of his brothers, could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And the text says that he weeps bitterly. Like this was a very emotional moment for him. And and I don't think Joseph is um, this guy that just cries at anything. You know what I mean? And maybe you're married to this person or you know this person who like a Verizon commercial comes on, right? And like, they're just immediately caught up in tears, right? And they're like, but the family got Wi-Fi. You know what I mean? They're just like, just in tears. I don't think that's Joseph. That's not Joseph. I mean, Joseph is this really tough guy. But after 20 years of suffering and pain and wondering what's going on, he sees his brother and then check out what happens next. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, it says this. But Joseph said to them, he's speaking to his brothers, they're worried he's going to kill them. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, you you intended to harm me. Your sin, your participation in sin intended to bring about more suffering, but God intended what you did to be used for good. That God was actually able to enter into the story and work through that suffering. I got a friend this week who gave me a call and he just lost his job. There weren't, there weren't a lot of conversations about it. They just called him into the office and said, hey, you're done. He provides for his family and he's got three little kids and just totally lost his job. When we were on the phone, he said this and I just had to, had to write it down and share it with you from Aaron Tucker. He said this. Oh, that's not it. Let's see. There it is. Thanks, guys. This is what he said. Somehow, what I'm going through is actually an expression of God's love. Christ will be made sweeter. God will be made bigger. And the Holy Spirit will be made deeper. There's an amazing brother and sister in our congregation named Karina and Kyle. And a few weeks ago, very suddenly, they lost their mom to liver cancer. And Tina Hart was an amazing leader in this church. And she had led the landing, our recovery ministry for students for almost for over two years. 
I remember talking with Karina. She's been walking through this pain. And, and she said one day when finally she had a break, she went home to get some things. And before she went back out to the hospital, she just fell on the floor of her living room. And she just started crying out. And she said, God, I don't know what to do. God, where are you? God, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And she said that in that moment, she sensed that God was with her, that he wrapped his arms around her. And he told her, I got you. I got you. See, that's how God enters into our suffering. And then lastly, God will one day end suffering. That suffering is not the end of the story. It's a part of our story right now. And God will be in it with us. But one day, God will end suffering. In Second Peter, it's recorded like this. Peter writes this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When it's talking about promise here, it's saying that one day God will return. One day God will come back. One day God will rid the world of evil and suffering, but God is patient God is patient because he wants to win the world over, because he wants to pursue every single one of us. And just because justice is delayed does not mean that justice is denied. And he knows it better than anyone. In fact, during this time, Nero was, was, he was actually tying Christians to giant poles and lighting them on fire to illuminate his sporting events. So as Peter's writing this, he's writing to people who have lost loved ones in a torturous, horrible way. And he says, hang on, because God is not done yet. And then in the last book of our scriptures, in Revelation chapter 21, we get a vision of what's to come. And maybe you're in suffering right now, and it doesn't look like things are going to get better. Remember, God is with you, and it's not the end of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we jump back into a time of musical worship and, and maybe for some of us, we're just totally broken and man, sin is just having its way with us and it's, it's devastating us. But God, I thank you that, that you enter into the suffering of the world, but that suffering is not the last chapter, that there is more to come. And so God, would you help us this week to look for you, to notice you in the midst of our suffering and to ultimately and always believe that our current pain and trials and suffering are not the last chapter, but there is something new, something beautiful, something without tears or pain coming. 
And so would you help us to hold on? In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.